text for this morning's sermon is 1 Samuel 25, if you want to turn there. 1 Samuel 25, and I'll be reading verses 32 through 34. Continuing the narrative, David's flee from Saul. 1 Samuel 25, verse 32. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord of God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I just ask that you would help us now as we look at uh, chapter 25 in 1 Samuel. Uh, this is your perfect word, and there's instruction here for us that we may be equipped to live godly lives, to be pointed to Christ. So God, I pray you would help us now. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If we're going to be honest, most of us think we're right almost all the time. Now, I know you would never say that. If someone asked you, you know, are you right all the time? You would say, no, I'm not. But then if you were to ask, well, then list off all the times you've been wrong and all the things you're wrong about. You'll be able to think of some, but that list is probably going to be hard for you to fill up. Because what it means to be human and even wanting to do good means that you know, we act on what we know. And we try to act according to what we think is true and right. And so if we're left to ourselves, I think a lot of us would have to admit that we think we're right. You know that song we just sang? According to how right we think we are, that song could be changed, right? All glory be to Sam or David or somebody, your name. We live so often in the blindness of, to our, to our own blindness. We think we see clearly. Uh, I experienced this just in the last uh, week or week and a half when I was at the conference. You know, you go to these conferences, you think you got a pretty good handle on what's going to be taught there. You think, you know, I'll be sharpened, things that, that, that are kind of familiar to me. I'm just going to think better about them. Well, at this uh, conference, on ethics and religious liberty, 
an area that I haven't studied a ton about, the topics such as racism came up. And I'm willing to bet if someone asked you, do you have racism in your heart? Most of you are going to say, no, I don't. I love people that have all different skin colors. I know I love them. I think we would plead. But this first speaker convicted me. The first speaker shone a light on my heart that scared me. His name was Brian Loritz, and he shared a statement that Martin Luther King Jr. famously spoke. King, after listening to white pastors give long, sophisticated-sounding answers in order to avoid boldly speaking to the racial issues of their day, here's what he said. So you got to feel the environment. Racial tension everywhere. White pastors giving technically right answers while avoiding entering the ballgame of fighting for injustice. Here's what he said. The one thing worse than hate is indifference. When I heard that, I thought, I don't know if I agree with King. Is it true that indifference is worse than hate? So as I came home, this thought was roaming around in my mind and I helpfully get to write a paper on this conference. And so here, here, here's how my thoughts came out on this paper. His statement seemed to me to be unreasonable at first. I thought, could this be true? Could it really be that those who only do not hate African Americans and even say they love them, but leave it at that, are worse than the haters? Does a person have to be proactively fighting against the racial injustices of their day in order to be more morally superior to the members of the Ku Klux Klan? That's a question. Does a person, is it enough to say, I love people of all races, even though I've done nothing about it? Is that better than actively acting out in hate? Here's what I think King was getting at. The haters act consistently out of an honest evil from their heart and display their ignorance of God's ways. The action of indifference, on the other hand, is the rotten fruit that rises from a cold heart that fails to hate what God hates and love what God loves. Indifference knows the right answers concerning injustice but lacks the love to do anything about it. Indifference is then hate undercover, only without as much collateral damage from society or from your own conscience. 
I think that's what Cain was getting at. And then I heard examples like this. When the New Jerusalem comes down from heaven and Christ brings it, this is a multicultural city. Every tribe, tongue, and nation will be there. And Jesus said, we're to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so it hit me. How do you feel when your town begins to look totally different than what it looked 30 years ago? And people's cultural and maybe even religious differences flood in around you into your nice little world. And so the conviction, the, the blinders came off my eyes. I can no longer soothe my heart by just saying, I really do love them. And I, I do. But Martin Luther King's saying, well then, let your love take action. Let your love glory in the fact that your town has the opportunity to look more like the new heavens and new earth one day. Now I say all that just to give a personal example of how Sam thinks he's right. But by the grace of God, Martin Luther King Jr.'s statement through another man, Brian Loritz, came to me and helped me see blindness in my life. Helped me see how fallible, how dark my heart can really be. Well, after chapter 24 of 1 Samuel, where David amazingly doesn't kill Saul when Saul, who's seeking his life, comes into the cave... David does not slay him because he fears God more than he fears Saul. His faith is so strong. His eyes are so clear in this moment. Now we might think at the end of chapter 24 that we could sing the song, All glory be to David. Didn't he do everything perfect almost? In chapter 24, he maybe shouldn't even cut the robe off Saul. But let's just admit, he saw things in a way that none of his men saw things. All of his men were saying, this is the day the Lord has given Saul into your hand. You would think here we would say, David is absolutely amazing. He doesn't seem to have blind spots. Well, the Bible doesn't let us go very long with thinking that about any man. And so let's recount the story. And you can, I'm not going to go read every verse. I'm going to tell you the story and I'm going to want to highlight some of the verses because it's a pretty long chapter. But here's how this chapter starts. Now Samuel died and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. They buried him in his house 
at Ramah. Now, if we've been paying attention to the first 25 chapters, the shining light of this book has now gone out. Samuel has died. This comforting prophet who God sent from Hannah during one of the darkest times in Israel is now dead. And that's all we get. A different chapter is turning. Now this should highlight something to us. Samuel seems so important, but in one verse we're just told now he's gone. And the book goes on. Because Samuel was a piece in God's providential plan. But then, here's what happens. David leaves En Gedi and heads into the deep south, into the Judean wilderness south of Ziph. If you remember a few weeks ago, he was heading into the wilderness. We saw the pictures of how vast this wilderness looks. He's heading even further south towards a town called Carmel, which is really close to another town called Maon. And so this is where David is heading with his men. And there was a man who lived in Maon, but was doing business in Carmel. And what we're told about this man is that he was very rich. And he was in Carmel doing business. He was shearing sheep. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. Now, look at verse 3. The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. So you couldn't get a couple that just didn't seem to fit together anymore. She's beautiful, and she's smart, and he's a nasty guy. You know, I... I think a lot of us guys, that might be the, the call if someone is going to evaluate our relationship. But Nabal really lived up to his name. His name means fool. And here's what happened. Nabal's shepherds were out in the wilderness and it's a dangerous place to be. Thieves will come in and often rob sheep or goats. And uh, even servants will be killed in order to steal property. But David ran into Nabal's servants. And what David did is he protected them. He was like a wall around them. He gave them food. He protected them. And so then David thought, here's what I'll do. I'm going to send ten men to greet Nabal. I heard he's shearing sheep in Carmel. And he says, go to them in my name and say, peace to you. And tell them that we've cared for his shepherds, we protected them, and ask if uh, we can find favor in your eyes. Give us what you have on hand so the young men can eat. 
It's the day of the feast and they need food. And so David's saying, go tell them how, go tell Nabal how we served him. Go tell him that David is asking for a little help for some food. Now here's Nabal's answer. Look at verse 10. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? <laughs> you see his attitude? I didn't ask him to protect my shepherds. Who's this David? Isn't he the rebel renegade who ran away from Saul and the kingdom? He's rich, he's tight, and he's ungrateful. It's his food. It's his drink. There's no recognition in God blessing him at all. So the young men come to David... And David says this in verse 13. David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. Every man of them strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. The word sword is coming up an awful lot. And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. Now, anyone reading this story, if you're going to ask them the question, now who's in trouble right now? Everyone's going to say Nabal. But chapter 25 tells us that David's in trouble. David is at a point where he's not seen quite so clear anymore. He thinks he's seen really clear. It, it almost seems justified. How dare Nabal disrespect the one who struck down Goliath? How dare he disrespect David in this way? And then look at verse 14. But yet one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out to the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. We did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as he went with him, or as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I couldn't even go tell Nabal about this because he's such a worthless man. You can't even talk to him. You can't even go reason with Nabal. You couldn't even go say, watch out, you're going to be killed. And we can be like this sometimes. We can be like Nabal where no one can really come talk to us reasonably. People walk on eggshells around us because of our own pride and arrogance that this is the situation. A wise woman was given information and Abigail got busy. She 
made 200 loaves of bread. And she got together two wide wineskins. She prepared five sheep to be eaten, five seas of parched grain, a hundred clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. And she sent out her young men ahead of her. So she gets this gift together. Amazing. I don't, I don't know how you get that much food together that fast. But she did it. As David approached, he's saying, in vain have I guarded this man's belongings. Look at verse 22. Here's, here's what's in David's heart. God do so to the enemies of David and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Now Nabal has a lot of male servants and male sons, I'm guessing, and family members. And David said, the Lord do to the enemies of David and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one of them left. Bloodshed is about to happen. This family is about to be destroyed. Servants who've been serving a jerk for a master are about to be killed for his master's folly. But then... Abigail threw herself down. She said, let the guilt be on me. My husband's a fool. Look at verse 26. Here's what she says. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. So she's, in a sense, prophesying, I'm here to protect you, David, from doing something you ought not do. And your enemies are going to be destroyed as she has faith. Her husband is going to end up in destruction. Look at verse 27. Now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who followed my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord is done to my Lord, according to all the good that He has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause for my Lord working salvation Himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. She says, David, I know you're going to be king. I know God is working good in your life. Don't work your own salvation, David. Wait for God to destroy your enemies. Isn't If there's anyone who's not going to make this mistake, isn't it David of chapter 24 who just let Saul go and said, let the Lord judge between you and me? Now the very next 
moment, he's blind and he's doing the thing you would think David would never do. You see, he's like you and me who think we're, we see so clearly and we may in a moment, but if we stop for a second and let ourselves feel as though, you know, all glory be to Sam who's so smart. Uh, now I'm in trouble. I'm going to screw up the very next moment just as David is screwing up. And then look at verse 32. Here's David's response. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who've kept me this day from the blood guilt, from working salvation with my own hand. For surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to me, truly by morning there would not have been left to Nabal so much as one male. So he says to her, go in peace. And here's what we find out. Look at verse 36. Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like a feast of a king. Nabal's heart was merry within him. He was very drunk. So she comes to her foolish husband. He's having another big party. So she told him nothing at all until morning light. In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife had told him these things and his heart died within him and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. So as he heard word, now we don't know what struck him. If it was a fear of God that struck him. Maybe he was actually so tight he couldn't believe she gave away you know, that many goats. We don't know. But he went stone cold for ten days and then the Lord killed him. When David heard, look at verse 39, that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who's avenged the insult I've received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servants from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. Then we see that David took more wives. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel. Both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Gollum. So here's the story of this chapter. What lessons can we learn from it? The main drive of what I want to challenge you with is this. Humble yourself under God's restraining protection from yourself. There's one enemy that is worse than any other enemy David has, and it's himself. And it's the same for you and I. And I'm asking you to humble yourself under God's providential working to keep you from yourself, from destroying yourself. So number one, respond wisely to God's restraining protection. David was in trouble. Uh, He didn't know it. 
He was going to do what seemed just, but actually he was going to become just like Saul. He was going to make a bloodbath of Moan, just like Saul made a bloodbath of Nob with the priests. David was about to act just like Saul. But sometimes God graciously intercepts us from folly. And He does it by sending people to wake us up. He sends people to keep us from our folly. Now there's two ways to respond to that. You can be frustrated that your plans have been hindered. Or you could be how David was. Here's David's response, verse 32. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you. You've kept me this day from blood guilt. Now think. He said, you kept me from working salvation with my own hands. He could have said, what a pain. Get out of my way. This is, you know, God sends a messenger. How often has God sent someone to speak truth into your life? And it's God's restraining grace. How often have we failed to respond like David did? Yes, David was blind, but he's recognizing God sent Abigail. Thank you, Lord, for keeping me from myself. Young people, when your parents put roadblocks in the thing that you want to do, this could be God's grace in your life restraining you from the foolish evil you're about to do or mistake you're about to make. Respond like David responded. What mercy sends frustration to our purposes? There's the country song. I thank God for unanswered prayers. We also ought to thank God for when our plans are thwarted because someone comes in and opens our blind eyes to the reality of the situation. Are you humble enough to receive God's gracious messengers? What it means to be human is that you don't know everything. That you're blind to your own blindness. And God in His grace takes His children and He tells them, go be a part of a church. Go be a part of a place where the Holy Spirit Spirit dwells in a bunch of people and don't be such a fool that you put up walls and quit listening as though you know everything. God in His grace gives us each other because we're all unlike God. We're like David in a lot of ways and sometimes uh, seemingly worse than David. The second thing, I want us to learn from this is realize the details of God's restraining protection. Now, when you look at this story at first glance, who's the characters involved? You got Nabal, you got Abigail, you have David, you have the young men. But often we miss this tiny little character in the story. Look at verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David is coming 
to kill Nabal and the male servants. There's this one character in God's providential plan to protect David. He's a nobody. He's another one in line to be killed. But if he doesn't come running to Abigail to tell her the plan, then David has blood all over his hands and there's a bloodbath. And what I want to point out is not to just highlight this one God uses that people don't recognize. As much as I want to highlight, look how God has every detail of His providential plan for your life figured out down to the smallest detail. We think Abigail saved David. That's true, but even this little servant God planned in His providence. How comforting is it to know that our God works for us by giving us faith to see clearly sometimes and as David did in chapter 24, but also He works so for us that when we're blind as a bat, He sends people to us and helps us wake up so that we avoid our own destruction. Uh, the Bible has many of these stories. Remember the story of Naaman who is sick and you have this little unnamed Hebrew girl who cares for the one who kidnapped her. My God can heal you. You need to go talk to the prophet. What if she wasn't there? When you think of Paul, when he's imprisoned by the Romans and the Jews want to kill him, you know, we forget a character in that story. Has the nephew of Paul ever stood out to you in that story? So, Paul is under arrest by the tribune, and the Jews get a plan. Here's what they say. They say, let's pretend like we want to question Paul some more. And 40 men took an oath, and they said, when we bring him to question him, we will not eat or drink until Paul is dead. We're going to kill him. So the Romans have him right now. Let's go say we want to question him, and when they send him to us to question him, we're going to kill him. We're not going to eat or drink until he's dead. But in Acts 23.16, here's what we read. Now the son of Paul's sister, which would be his nephew, heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, and then Paul told the Romans, here's the plan. And God providentially protected Paul in that moment. But the point is, how often is God working through the little details of your life you don't even know about? The third thing I think we can learn from this is receive the comfort from God through others. Here's our temptation. When we're hurting you know what we say? I need time. Get away. Get away. I don't want to hear encouragement. Let me be miserable. This is what we can tend to do, and we can call it a personality type. You know, I just, I just need my space. And I think what we can learn from this is receive the comfort that comes through others. Listen how Abigail encourages David. 
who, by the way, there's been 12 attempts on his life since chapter 18. He might need a little encouragement. Please forgive the, this verse 28, the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. David, you're going to have a kingdom. The Lord is certainly going to do it because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies He shall sling out as from a hollow, the hollow of a sling. What a gracious prophet Abigail is to David. David, all of God's promises are going to come true for you. Isaiah 54 says this, The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught. Isaiah says, God's given me wise men to speak to me, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. God's blessed me with these people so that I know how to come with my mouth and sustain him who is weary. Will you receive God's comfort from those whom He sends to comfort you? You will not suffer alone. I just promise you, if you're in the body of Christ, unless you demand to suffer alone. God will not forget you. He will encourage you. And most often, He'll do it through His people carrying God's Word to you. Or as we saw a few chapters ago, as a friend who takes your hand and puts it in the hand of God and says, there, that's where you need to be. Fourth thing I think we can learn from this, remember God avenges your enemies. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord... you you got to see this verse. I think it's verse 25. Or 29. Look at verse 29. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. So, God has a bundle. I don't know what a bundle is, but I just picture kind of like, here's his bundle. You ain't touching God's bundle. And what Abigail tells David, it's just a beautiful picture. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord God. If they're coming after you, you better know where you are You're in this bundle of the living that God's protecting. It's such a visual picture. And then he says this, and the lives of your enemies shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. (laughs) I just love that picture. You're in the bundle of the living with God 
And your enemies that you're afraid of right now are going to be slung out just like from the hollow of a slingshot when a rock takes off. Know that God is the avenger of our enemies. We've all seen these courtroom scenes where a family member has been murdered and the criminal is there. And he might even be smirking at the father of the lost daughter who's been slain. And we've seen those men jump over the wall, dive across the table, seeking revenge. And we can understand it from a human perspective. But here's the reality. The person who knows God avenges, you don't have to do that. God's vengeance will be better than your punch or your fury. God will call all accounts to be. And so remember, let God avenge your enemies. You know, and this might seem weird. Some of you, some of you struggle in marriages and it seems so wrong what your spouse is doing. But it's not that your spouse is your enemy, but it's even helpful just to say, God knows. I'm not the one who's going to settle accounts. I'm going to stand before God, hopefully in Christ's blood, if you're trusting Christ, and God is God. We don't make all things right. He makes all things right. And the fifth thing, what I want to close with, is rely only on Jesus to bring about His kingdom. If you take every character so far in 1 Samuel, the bad ones, the Elis and the Sauls, and the good ones, the Samuels and the Jonathans and the Davids, one thing's all crystal clear. All of them are going to fail to bring about the kingdom of God. If the kingdom of God is going to happen, God's going to have to do it. We're going to see David fail a lot coming up in the future. Jonah, right before he spit out of the mouth of the whale, said, salvation belongs to the Lord. We don't work our salvation. David is proof of this. He was blind. He needs God's providence to send a woman before him to save him from himself. Psalm 37, 39 the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. Salvation came and comes only through Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. It's the most comforting thing in the world. Because if you're waiting for David to bring it, you're going to be really worried. And if you're counting on yourself to bring it, then you're going to be absolutely miserable. Salvation comes only through Christ. His kingdom, by the way, we don't bring in His kingdom. Yes, we're a foretaste of the kingdom to come, but you want to know when His kingdom comes? When He comes out of the sky and brings it with Him. There's only one person that can bring the kingdom of God down to earth. It's not you or I. Yes, we can live according to the kingdom laws and the power of Christ can it can be lived out through us. We can't bring the kingdom down. Jesus brings the kingdom. 
I want to finish by just reading these verses from Revelation. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on His head are many diadems. He has a name that is written that no one knows but Himself. He is clothed with the robe dipped in blood, and by the name by which He is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following Him on white horses. We don't need to do anything. We're spectators. From His mouth comes a sharp sword to which to strike down the nations. He'll rule them with the rod of iron. He'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. By the way, that's where God's taking vengeance that we don't need to take. On His robe and on His thigh, He has the name written, King of kings, Lord of lords. There's only one King. And then in chapter 22, here's what He says. The most comforting the most trembling words and comforting words you can hear. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. That doesn't sound like good news yet, does it? (laughs) I'm coming with recompense to repay everyone for what they've done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. There's going to be those that are welcomed into heaven, and it's those who have washed their robes in the blood of Jesus Christ. Outside are dogs and sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify about these things for the churches. And here's what he says. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. I'm the king you're waiting for. I'm the king better than David, he's saying. The spirit and the bride say, and here's, listen, this isn't me telling you this. Anyone in here, that trembles at the fact that Jesus is coming back to repay people for what they've done. Here's what the Spirit and the Bride say to you. Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. Go ahead, say it. Come. Do you hear that? Jesus is saying, Come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. When you tally up your works, are you worried? Are you lacking? If you're thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Christ is coming. He's the perfect King. He's bringing recompense. He's going to right all wrongs. And right now, by the grace of God, through His Scripture, Jesus Christ says, come to Me if you're thirsty. Come to Me if you know you're in trouble. If you know you need your robes washed, come to me and buy water without price because you're saved by grace through faith, not by works. If that's you here today and you're saying, I know that I'm in trouble when Jesus comes. Here's what you need to know. When Jesus died on the cross, He died your death. 
that you deserve to die. He paid your hell that you deserve to pay. And if you believe that He did that and you're a sinner and your only hope is Him, and you cling to Him as your only hope by faith, saying, Christ, You're, you're my only hope, then you'll be given water that will never end. You're given His life, eternal life. You'll be enter right through the gate into the city and you'll eat from the tree of life and you'll never die. If you'll trust in Christ, He's the only one that can work salvation. Father, thank You so much for Your care for Your people. God, I thank You that You didn't just tell us the way and tell us Your judgment, but You actually stepped into history and made all that good news as You put grace on display for sinners. Lord, none of us here is good enough. None of us is right all the time. So Lord, I pray that we would be humble. We would be open to the way You want to restrain us from ourselves through other people. And most importantly, Lord, I pray all of us would cling to You as King because You will surely come again. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.